that time of the week again, or should I say the fortnight, because this podcast gets produced every fortnight now. It's the Flat Out RC podcast time. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. And what is this podcast all about? Well, it's all about radio control, flight between planes, helis, and drones. If it flies, we like it. And generally, if it flies, the radio control unit in your hand, even better. What an episode we've got for you this week. Uh, Brian Hutchinson is our special guest. Brian is a well-known aero modeler down here in my neck of the woods. Uh, lives down at uh, Bensdale down in eastern Victoria in the Gippsland region of Australia. A nice place to go to. You often hear me talk about the Bensdale Club because it's a great club. You'll hear more about it when I talk to Brian. But uh, before we get to that, let's have a look at what's happening around the traps. Well, as you know, I like to promote upcoming events that are happening generally in Australia, but if anybody wants me to plug anything that's happening around the world, I'm more than happy to uh, because we have an international audience here. Uh, but uh, I think there's an event coming up uh, quite soon, 24th, 25th of June, the New South Wales Pattern Flyers 1000 Aerobatics Competition. Uh, it's, it's basically a pattern flying competition where you can win up to $1,000. And from the way that I read it, and I could be wrong, the winner of each, well, this is what it says, the winner of each class will fly an extra flyer round in which they can perform their respective manoeuvre schedule. To give everyone a chance of winning, one additional pilot from each class will be randomly selected to participate in a flyer round. Pilot who scores the highest percentage compared to their promotional competition raw score average will take home grand prize. So it's like a handicap kind of way of determining who gets your $1,000. So, 24th, 25th of June, um, it will be held at the Rebel Flying Club field located off Cabbage Tree Road, Ash Island in Hexham, New South Wales. Now, if you want more information, go to nswpattern.org.au. That's nswpattern.org.au. That's the New South Wales Pattern Flyers website, nswpattern.org.au. 24th to 25th of June, 1000 bucks you can win. And you can go in any category. You can be in sportsman or, you know, the, the, the entry levels. Uh, if, I think at the basic level, you can fly any plane, but above that, you've got to have a pattern-specific plane, so something that is no larger than 2 metre by 2 metre. And, um, yeah, good event, that. 1000 bucks, Great prize. So, anyway, get on down to that. Uh, another good event that is coming up is the Festival of Aero Modeling held out at Inglewood in Queensland at a full-size airport, so plenty of space, which means that there's going to be four flight lines. Now, it's going to be on the 26th of June to the 3rd of July. It's an eight-day event, 26th of June to the 3rd of July, Inglewood Airport. Uh, you can fly whatever you want. Uh, if it's got gliders, 3D, scale planes, warbirds, you name it, bring it and you can fly it. There'll be uh, self-contained camping on site. Motels and caravans available in Inglewood. Food will be available on-site daily. You can hire a marquee space. You can hire a golf cart to get around because there's lots of flight lines. So if you want to move around, uh, it'd be handy to have something like a golf cart. Uh, best thing to do is you can go and register and purchase your tickets and register everything, whatever, at www.alsm.com.au. That's alsm.com.au. Um, register. Get on there. Um, 
alsm.com.au. Festival of Aero Modeling. It's going to be a big event. Uh, lots of people will be traveling from around Australia to get to this event. It's the second one. They had the first one last year. We had the team on on the podcast. You want to know all about it, go back and have a look around. Last July, early July would have been, late June, early July. Um, I had a bunch of uh, the organisers, the girls there. Martin Pickering was on the line. So um, that was a really good uh, good chat to see how that event went. So it's come, happening again, 26th to the 3rd of July. 26th of June to the 3rd of July www.alsm.com.au for registrations. Now, there's one other message I want to pass on. It's around pylon racing. I've got a message from uh, John, who's involved in the uh, pylon racing scene here. And as he says, quite rightly in the message to me, that the Australian pylon racing scene is is quite a, a good one. We punch above our weight on an international level. We've had numerous world champs in in the in the uh, sphere. You know, Chris Callow. Is, is one name that comes to mind. We've had Chris on the uh, on the podcast, and uh, go if you want to know all about pylon, go back and listen to that podcast because it's phenomenal. I, I was an eye opener. I didn't realize how much work went into pylon racing and you know engine modifications and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like the Formula One of of aero modeling. But um, there are events happening around the country. Um, the Australian Miniature Pylon Racing Association is the association. Now they're holding an event on the King's Birthday weekend. We used to call it the Queen's Birthday weekend down here in Victoria. It's now the King's Birthday weekend on June the 10th to the 11th, which I think is when this podcast comes out, it's the upcoming weekend. It's going to be at the Munro Field Model Aircraft Club. It's a purpose-built flying field uh, between Sale and Bairnsdale and Gippsland. Uh, and that's where the, the the pattern flyer, oh, sorry, the pylon flyers are. Uh, fly a lot of events down here in Victoria. Uh, but, uh, yeah, if you're into things that go fast, pylon racing is where it's at. It's like they're absolutely phenomenal, these models. And there's a lot of skill involved in, in piloting them well and, and setting them up as well. So uh, it's a plug for pylon racing, not just this event that's happening. Uh, plug for pylon racing. So uh, go and search up the Victoria or the Victorian Miniature Pylon Racing Association or the... Uh, Australian Pylon Racing, what did I say it was? Australian Miniature Pylon Racing Association, AMPRA. Get online, have a look, and uh, get involved with pylon racing. Now, uh, that's all I have for you as far as notices, uh, but I want to talk about motivation. You know, uh, what do I mean by that? Well, the weather's turning cold where I am. This weekend, as I record this, is pretty miserable. And I was planning to do some work on a jet and then I couldn't be bothered and then I started doing some work and things like that. Um, and so how do you stay motivated, especially as the weather turns? Now, in the Northern Hemisphere, where many of these listeners, many of you who are listening are from, you're coming into a great time. You just had the Joe Null event. You, um, your weather's warming up. You know, things are looking good. You're getting into your flying seasons. Uh, down here where I live, we sort of it becomes hit and miss. Uh, historically, I used, I used to track all my flights, and historically, you could see a two month gap. Uh, but that, I do enjoy one of those winter's days where it's still dead still. Going to the flying field, nice thick air. It's I'd rather I prefer flying when it's cold than when it's hot. I don't like flying when it's really really hot. But uh, you know what? What are you going to do? You're going to be in the shed working on models. As I said, I have a motivation issue sometimes because if the weather's bad, I can't be bothered sitting in the shed getting cold working on a model. But on the other hand, I know that if I put the effort in now, once the weather clears up and we get into springtime, my models will be ready to go. And most of my models are good. I'm pretty fortunate at the moment that 
I can pull my trailer out and I've got multiple models in there and I could fly any one. Just as long as I've got charged batteries, they're all ready to go, which is good. But I've got a, a couple of jets that uh, need a bit of work, a bit of assembly work. Nothing, again, it's nothing major because I'm not much of a builder. I just don't have time for it at this present point in time in my life. Uh, but uh, I just want to get them done so I've got the opportunity to fly them. But I just can't get motivated enough to get started. I rang up my mate Dominic, the head of the peanut car, and I said, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to put the jet in the, in the car and I'm going to come to your place. And I rang him the other day and said, yeah, I didn't turn up, did I? Um, I was busy doing some work. I, I'm, I, in winter, I go skiing. I've got a house up in the country near a ski resort and I enjoy going skiing. And actually, this year, I'm going to be a ski instructor. If you're heading towards Mount Buller, the Mount Buller Ski Resort, I'm assuming I'm touching wood here that I passed the exam. I've got to do the exam uh, just after the King's Birthday uh, holiday down here. But I'm going to be doing some ski instructing up there on weekends and stuff because I do. I have been skiing since I was a kid and I just like different challenges. And because we can't go flying in winter that much, I might as well do something else. So I'm going to be doing that and that's going to take up a lot of my time. And so I've got to be very organized with my work commitments and traveling around all that kind of stuff. So if I could just get those models sorted now, it's going to be a lot easier. But for those of you that aren't crazy like me and want to do it, you know, got a very active mind and have to try lots of different things, I'd be building, get everything ready. I always say we have a big event here in September, which, by the way, the entry forms are now online. I put them up the other day for the club, the Valley Radio Club, Valley Radio Flyers Club, the Shepparton Mammoth Scale Flying. That is, uh, I think it's going to be the 40th one for memory this year. That's going to be on again, and that's in the middle of September, that middle weekend in September. And that's my line in the sand that starts flying season again after winter. Because we know that even though last year's weather was not great, normally we, it's it's flyable and the weather's warming up, that kind of thing, the, the worst of the cold weather, we're well into spring. So it, it's a good time. So get everything ready now. Middle of September, mammoth scale flying, that's when we're all kicking off again if you're living in colder areas. And if you're fortunate enough to get down to the club and you've you know, got a bit more time and flexibility with your time, if you're retired or whatever, don't have to go to work and you can pick a good day in the middle of the week to go for a fly, perfect. Go for it. Just not in that situation at the moment. But anyway, motivation. What keeps you motivated? <laughs> Time for a guest, my favourite part of the podcast. Uh, and this week's guest is a gentleman that I've had on my list of invitees for a long time. Uh, Brian Hutchinson is his name. And uh, I met Brian oh, probably at the Bensdale Club, I think. I, I may have met him somewhere else. Uh, but Brian is a, a really good scale model builder. And he has been for a very long time. And so I always like talking to people that have got that wealth of history and a great story to tell. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to grab Brian's story. And you might hear his lovely wife, Lorraine, in the background. She was listening in as well. And, and she's been alongside him, it, it appears, on this aero modeling journey. So she knows the planes and all that. So well done, Lorraine, as well. So good chat with Brian. Uh, you'll, you'll hear a great story of a, a gentleman that's been involved in the hobby for a very long period of time. He was reluctant to get on, but we got him on. He said he might not turn up, but he turned up. So here is my chat with the one and only Brian Hutchinson. Well, we're back with a very special guest. And it's a guest who I've been hounding him to come onto this podcast. And 
He he actually said to me when I ra- just rang him, he said, I, th- I was hoping you'd forget. But Brian Hutchinson, you're not getting away that easy. Thanks for joining me here on the Flat Out RC podcast. Uh, it's good to be with you, Andrew. I listen to your podcast quite regularly and enjoy every one, really. You waffle on a bit, but we all do that. <laughs> oh, Brian, do you know what I say to people? It's a podcast. If nobody talks, then there's not much to listen to. So sometimes, you know, I have to... Chime, you know, chime in. But anyway, it's your turn to shine today. And so many people have said to me, "Oh, I've got to get Brian on because you know he's a master builder. He's been, he's built everything. Got to get him on." And so, let's start at the very beginning. Where did your journey in aero modelling begin? Well, it actually began in Horsham, I suppose, when I was when I first started high school. There were a couple of uh, interesting. I lived in the country. I was a, a, a farmer's son, and uh, we. Lived uh, 35 kilometres uh, south of Horsham and on a on a grazing and uh, wheat growing property, and uh, uh, I had to uh, find a way to uh, go to high school, which was in in the town of in the city of Horsham, and uh, that was uh, uh, impractical by bus because the nearest bus uh, stop was about uh, uh, I think about eight k's or ten k's from my house. So uh, I boarded with my grandmother in, in town and went to high school. And the uh, the young boys around the area had uh, some control line models and uh, I, I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to do anything with regard to models. But they taught me a few basics and I was never much good at control line flying but enjoyed it immensely and built a few little models. Uh, uh, a couple of uh, I, I remember building an SE5A I thought that was a beautiful scale model. <laughs> when I look back on it, I shudder at the thought. <laughs> it was covered in tissue and I didn't know how to work tissue. And Oh, my goodness. But anyway, it's all part of the fun. You've got to get those models out of the way early, though. You know, those first models, they're, they're the learning models. So, you know, but no doubt. Oh, of course they are. What kind of motors were you running in those uh, in those models? Were they diesel or were they? Uh... Uh, yes, I had a little Taipan diesel in that one, I think. 1.5 cc from memory. Was it hard to start? Yes, difficult to start. But all the Taipans were, to my way of thinking. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you, you, you did what you could. Um, there were some pretty basic engines around in those days. Not much in the way of good stuff, but, well, not much in the way of good stuff that I could uh, find the money to buy. Anyway. We're talking the early, are we talking the early 60s here or what kind of era? Well, I started working in 1960, so it's before then. Gee, oh, <laughs> you must be 100 years old, Brian. 1956, seven, seven, eight, and 9. Okay. When I went to high school, yeah. Yep. And then, okay, so you, 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 you did you start to build? So obviously you had to build these uh, these kits from kit, you know, these models. Uh, I didn't have any kits. Uh, I had, uh, I was given a couple of, uh, little uh, plans, full-size plans, and I built the first couple of little models off those plans. Uh, one, one was a, a control line, or I suppose you'd call it a team racer, uh, with solid, all solid balsa materials and a profile fuselage. Um, I immediately destroyed that and <laughs> built another one and destroyed that mm-hmm. uh, and decided control line wasn't for me, so I went off into building a few... F- to free flight models and had more fun with that. Yeah, so free flight's interesting one that, uh, you know, what were you building, glider glider, glider style models? 
I'll just start off with little gliders and then I'll build a couple of uh, small uh, uh, ribbed wing uh, monoplanes with uh, not not to any particular scale, just uh, just little models that I found drawings for um, uh, tissue covering, which I was improving at, but not never really good at. Um, but then I, I had to had a break for a few years after I started work. Uh, I soon after I started work, I suppose I met my uh, current wife, and uh, uh, you know that puts a break on modelling a bit, and uh, partic particularly when you got you're looking around to establish a home, and 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 uh, and, and uh, I worked three jobs to do that uh, for for a period of time, three or four years, I suppose, uh, to find enough funds to buy some land and start a house build. And uh, modelling took backseat for a while. Did you stay in the Horsham area when you got married? Yeah, I stayed in we stayed in the Horsham area, area until 1985. After at, um, late in 85, we moved to Pensale. It was a, a a promotion in my work, uh, and uh, uh, it was worth taking. So we moved to Pensale and established a new uh, home in. in Near Bansdale. Okay, yeah. so it's interesting. You went from one side of Victoria out, out west to out east, which I rarely hear of. Yeah, as far away from the capital city as possible of both ends. <laughs> That's true. That is true. <laughs> it, yeah, it's actually about the centre, isn't it? Like the, the Horsham is what? <laughs> Just about the same distance. Yeah, it is, yeah. isn't it? It's about a three-hour drive <laughs> each way. Yeah, That's it. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So uh, what was your career? What did you work as? I started work uh, as a, an apprentice uh, fitter and turner with the Country Roads Board back, back in those days. Oh, yeah. And uh, we manufactured lots of materials for heavy machinery because not much uh, 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 spare parts was available, really, and, and uh, most of our machinery was imported anyway. And it, it wasn't like the, uh, the industries of these days where everything was is freely available and you just swap out one component for another. It was, uh, you know, manufacture. Components for all sorts of uh, uh, equipment. Yeah. Ah, so now I'm joining the dots. Like you had that in you, uh, you know, that building ability and that ingenuity kind of uh, side of things that probably led you into some of the, the the builds that you've done over the years. Now, two 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 things, I suppose, really, Andrew. The first one, you're right. The first one was uh, uh, c coming from a farm where. You make everything of your own. <laughs> in those days, we did. You know, nobody had any money to buy equipment. Nobody had any money to buy machinery. So you, you uh, if you were lucky, were given some old thing that wouldn't work and uh, and, and uh, you repaired it or reconditioned it and made it work. And uh, that's how they operated the farm. You know, after World War Two, there were a lot of returned soldiers and uh, no jobs for them and no money for them if they had a job. Uh, so it was pretty tough going for a while, and uh, uh, particularly for the for the for people of my parents' age and that sort of thing. And you know, they they were trying to establish themselves and finding it very difficult. The second thing probably was um, the fitting and turning apprenticeship. Uh, I was mentored by a, a, a German uh, uh, fitter and turner uh, of of very high experience and he was a he was a quiet sort of a guy 
who went off later in life to uh, manufacture jewellery for people. But uh, yeah, he 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 taught me a lot of stuff that uh, lots of fitted internists wouldn't have been uh, subjected to, I suppose, which is very good. Okay, so that sort of um, you're pretty lucky though to have a, like a mentor. Or a coach oh, to extremely do that. so. Extremely so, Andrew, um, and 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 uh, Con was one of those guys, quite unassuming sort of a guy, but one of those guys who uh, accepted nothing but uh, perfection. You know, the job had to had to be done correctly, and uh, uh, he he taught me uh, he taught me well there. Yeah. Anyway, I soon I soon uh, moved off into <laughs> doing my own my own thing and and not. Uh, uh, adhering to the perfection so much as, as as building to a point is particularly models building to a point where I thought it was satisfactory and, and stopping there rather than going to the nth degree. Yeah. So I'd ne- I'd never be a world scale champion or anything like that because I couldn't uh, I couldn't uh, suffer the time taken to go to the finest details. Yeah, that's true. Well, okay. So you get into the free flight thing. How long did you do that for? Oh, uh, probably only three or four years really and then i after uh, we'd established our home i found that uh, there were a small group of people up there starting to fly with one or two or even three channel uh radio sets and my brother found a small set for me which was a three channel set uh, uh proportional for two channels and uh, uh like a third channel was a throttle channel which was uh, which was either on or off, which was, you know, uh, something that I could get my teeth into. I tried a couple of times to work on uh, escapement stuff, but I couldn't even master that. There were flyers who did, but I couldn't. So you're still in Horsham at this stage. You know, it's interesting. Like you're saying you're busy, you're establishing your work life, you're establishing the home, so you must have got married quite young. Uh, in in <laughs> 1966. 9th of April, nineteen sixty-six, and I'm saying that because my wife is sitting here listening. I was about to say, yeah, I hope you got the date <laughs> correct. <laughs> See, we 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 modern people, Brian, we put our anniversaries into our our email calendars so that we remind ourselves, so we never get in trouble anymore. I wouldn't dare forget that that one, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, but it sounds like you you stayed connected to this aero modelling, you know. Even with a little short break, you still stayed connected and kept on, you know, being involved at some sort of level. So, okay, so when does the radio control thing really start to kick in for you? Probably when I found someone to sell me a a very early, I think, four-channel craft radio set. Okay, so we're talking, what, 70s here? We're talking, yes, early 70s somewhere. I can't tell you exactly. It's a... Yeah, I can't tell you, give you an exact date, but it's around. It's in the early seventies, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we we started then to build uh, uh, more complicated, more sophisticated models. You might say, not so much in the uh, early stages scale models, but things that I could learn to fly with. Yeah. And were you flying? Was there a club, or where were you flying? Well, we there were three or four people. Uh, no one on, on no one on the mode that I wanted to fly, mode one. Uh, but we had a couple of guys on mode two who could fly a little bit, and we taught each other things, I suppose. 
and learn to fly. Being being in a reasonably remote country town at that stage of our careers, uh, there weren't many people around who had any experience at all. And I suppose that was similar, you know, everywhere, but probably in the city where you could meet up with more and more enthusiasts, you might have had a better chance of uh, finding out how to do things. How did you find out how to do things? Were you reading magazines or or what? Uh, yeah, RC Modeler was out and about in those days, and that was good. Uh, uh, I, I got to... I got to... Not RC, no, not, uh, not, hang on, not the, not the Australian RC modeler, the American one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then later on, the Australian RC modeler came out, started. Airborne, was it? Airborne? Airborne started, yeah. Airborne, yes, Airborne started. And uh, uh, we started to look at scale models then because there were some pictures of scale models and we thought we could do that. So... Uh, we went to uh, Camperdown Nationals was the first, and that was quite a big nationals competition in Camperdown. A lot of people, a lot of people, and it was went for a week or something. Yeah. I think eight days, and, and and we really loved that. Was that the race course at the Camperdown race course? Uh, various sites, but I think the race course was one of them. One of the volcano areas was, was another one where they had gliders or something. Yeah, I can't remember the details of it much these days, but. Uh, we spent a few days, quite a few days there, camped in the camped in the race course or the showground, one or the other. Did you start to develop sort of a, a, a style of model that you liked? So, you know, was it warbirds or civilian planes or was it a bit of ex- everything? Ah, uh, warbirds is it for me. It's always been it, really. Uh, the other things were to help me learn the basics of flight and that sort of thing and... Uh, and figure out how to how to uh, get an aeroplane into the air and onto the ground again mm. without it coming down in three bits. Yeah. <laughs> why? Why do you think warbirds? Well, why do you think I have a Catalina? I don't know. Maybe I can throw it back onto you. Um. When you when you think of an aeroplane, yeah. When you first think of an aeroplane, what do you think of? Oh. You don't think you don't think of a jumbo or a commercial do you no. really well at least i don't no 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 I, don't. I, I think of something that's iconic something that everybody can recognize even though some some people don't like them they'll still recognize them yeah uh, and i suppose that's why that's why i built uh, uh the catalina that's certainly why i built my first lockheed lightning which was a m m m k m k model of about uh, six foot wingspan, I think it was, you know, back in the old days, 1.8 metres, and two little uh, 40, 40 uh, glow engines on it. Uh, and that, that's, I flew that in all, all over the place. Uh, we used to, in Horsham, we used to run uh, annual uh, display days for the, uh, the uh, charitable things around the town. Also, we, we went to took for 35 k's up the road to Dimboola and and put on a display for the Dimboola hospital every year to for the auxiliary to make some money and they they uh, uh, charged quite substantial amounts of money for people to come and look at our, our flying of models and 
uh, you know, the, the hospital auxiliary made quite a lot of money at Timbula. Certainly the Horsham people did similar. And we enjoyed that. We loved it, in fact. And in those days, you were allowed to do pretty much anything you liked, and there wasn't much in the way of crowd control. Mm-hmm. So we set up a cardboard uh, battleship in the middle of the airfield, and uh, we proceeded to strafe it, and, and I had about 30 or 40 little uh, detonator wires coming out to a box on the side, and every time a plane flew over, we'd blow a piece of the oh. battleship off with it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> with, with a bit of petrol and so on, you know, make a big black smoke and <laughs> blow the funnels off or something. Yeah, that yeah. would have been good to see. But, that would have been good. Well, it was, it was spectacular for the people who'd never seen anything like that before. But if you tried to do that now, you'd be thrown in jail. That's right. <laughs> now, uh, tell me, um, it sounds like s- some of the models that you've made, and we're going to talk about some of the models that you made, that you they're not the kind of models that you could just go to a hobby shop and, and, and buy off the shelf a kit or something like that. It sounds like you've, you've selected some of the models that are uh, sort of a bit more obscure sometimes or harder to build, I reckon. Do you think that's the case? Oh, I suppose that's true. But it wasn't really that wasn't really the aim where I'm concerned. It was more the icon, you know, the string bag for argument's sake, the fairy swordfish. Where else in the world would you find an aircraft of such a vintage, you know, 1933 or something like that, that that was so uh, devastating to enemy shipping and, and and enemy aircraft during World War Two? You know, they they they. Uh, they uh, virtually controlled the North Sea for the British for, to, to allow shipping to come across from America and, 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 and across the Atlantic, uh, whereas the German submarines would have just uh, obliterated all shipping over to the swordfish. And the same with the Italian fleet. It was, uh, it was <laughs> put to post in, in uh, Taranto Harbour. Uh, they, they just destroyed the whole fleet. But that was all fairy swordfish, nothing else. So that's the icon, really. Uh, I'm not really a I'm not really a war buff or anything like that. But I do see the technology uh, and the skills of the people who who flew those things as something pretty special. Particularly the skills of the pilots and and, and crew and those uh, fairy swordfish. They were out over the North Sea in the middle of winter. I don't know how many degrees minus it would have been, but uh, in an open cockpit, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, the one thing I like about that era is the planes are. You know, there were a lot of planes being developed and and built, and they're so intriguing. You know, a, a modern plane is very sleek and very smooth, where a lot of these older planes have a lot of character. And so, when it comes to aero modelling, you can you can rebuild that that character versus you know like. You know, when you said to me earlier, you know, what plane comes to mind, the first thing I thought of is Cessna, you know, a high-wing Cessna. And I, and I like a high-wing yeah. Cessna, and, and the high-wing Cessna models look good in the air and they look quite realistic, but it's a very, very smooth kind of looking plane versus a P-51 or a, you know, a DC-3 or a, you know, the, like I said, the fairy swordfish. When you look at the fairy swordfish, there's so <laughs> much to look at. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I, I built uh, several Cessnas over the years. I built one uh, back in, in Horsham when we used to fly it on a farm paddock and 
And the guys liked to fly combat in those days, but we didn't have combat models. We just selected the model that we were flying for that day and tied a string and a bit of streamer on the back, and away we went. Well, mine was a Cessna. Yeah. The guy who came through to cut my string, so so to, my tape, so to speak, uh, dropped the main undercarriage out of the Cessna instead. <laughs> and with that, hang, with that undercarriage out, the bottom of the fuselage was open, and the battery hang out on the lead. Oh, no. Well, I got it to about 20 feet from the ground <laughs> before the battery fell off. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, all good fun. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it combat's one of those funny things when you think about it, that you've got to be willing to lose your plane because you never know. It's not, it's not a precise art, is it? No, it is not. It is not. And, and I've reached the stage in my life uh, for the second time where I just don't feel confident to do it anymore, unfortunately. Uh, so I'm go- I've gone back to flying a little light glider, which can't hurt anyone if it hits them and that sort of thing, just to be safe, really. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we're, we're progressing through the 70s here. It sounds like the building bug was well and truly alive. Is that correct? Oh, yes, of course. It's always been alive. Not always uh, been in a position to build models, uh, but I did have a break in the middle. Uh, first of all, I need to I need to explain one further issue or one further matter to you that you may not uh, uh, be aware of. First, uh, firstly, we went to the uh, nationals at Camperdown and became enthusiasts, and then we decided to compete in the uh, uh, nationals at Goulburn in New South Wales. Uh, and I think that was the hottest week I've ever experienced anywhere in the in Australia. I was going to say Goulburn because when I was in Goulburn, it was the coldest that I've ever been. It was so cold well, in, in the middle it was of winter. Shocking summer in in Goulburn when we were there. But I did fly that uh, 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 six foot lightning uh, in the scale uh, standoff scale con- contest in those days, and. Uh, uh, I flew it into res- respectably into the middle of the field sort of thing, so I was pretty happy with that. Uh, and I had uh, then a Catalina. Now, you wouldn't think I'd have a Catalina, would you? No. I had a Catalina, which was also 1.8 metres wingspan, the standard six foot. And I flew that. Goulburn had the only, as far as I know, the only nationals where they had a seaplane competition. And I flew the Catalina in the seaplane competition. Now, in my particular category, there were only two pilots, uh, so I got second place. <laughs> That's it. Look, you take it as you get, get them. You know, <laughs> the thing is, you're yeah. a winner for you know. If there's only two of you. That mean, what was the category? Uh, it was a, a scale scale seaplane. Okay. What was everybody else flying in that category then? Oh, I can't remember what the other model is. To be quite honest, do you mm. remember, Lauren? No, no, too long ago. And so then we we became more enthusiastic about competitions, and the Horsham Club expanded dramatically over the years. We had quite we had about thirty five members, I think, from memory. Uh, and we decided that uh, we would apply to the BMWA to hold the nationals in Horsham. Oh, gee, it's a big job. So in. Christmas 80, 81, Christmas New Year 80, 81, I think it was, we held the Nationals up there. And Muggins happened to be the president of the club at the time, so we, we ran around all over the place and didn't do any flying 
at that uh, nationals, but we enjoyed it immensely. And we had, uh, I think we had about 4,000 competitors there. Just don't hold me to that, but we had a lot of competitors there uh, for seven or eight days. Brian, I don't in, think in it was 4,000. Sorry? Have, it couldn't have been 4,000 competitors. Well, it was a lot of competitors, I'll <laughs> tell you that. A lot of competitors over, over all the different... Uh, Bookings of 4,000. Bookings of people? Bookings of competitors. Oh, okay, competitors. Yeah, it might be, yeah, 4,000 people in total. The yeah. it, It's an interesting era, though, with those nationals where it, it's, a, it, you know, if we compare it to nowadays, we're having trouble just trying to run a local, uh, you know, inter-club competition. Uh, I know, it's crazy. Whereas, it? whereas you know, oh, we've got... We've got like you know, the IMAX scene, the pattern flyers and the scale flyers and pylon races and all that, like the individual sort of groups. But yeah, that whole you know society's changed so much that it becomes very, very difficult to run like an, an old nationals. But everybody that used to go to them says that they, were, they were so much fun. They were awesome events to go to. Well, I think one of the things with it in those early days for us was probably due to the fact that it was a, a new and um, sort of unheard of means of flying an aeroplane, radio control. I mean, uh, you know, control line and stuff like that. Well, that was just a little. That was just a little circle, and and and, and the model followed the circle or crashed. Uh, with radio control, you could go anywhere, and it was just something pretty new to everybody. Nowadays, that's not the case anymore, Andrew. Everyone has a mobile phone, and they can fly there fly their model aeroplane on a mobile phone for goodness sake you know it's a different different it's world different altogether isn't it it is mm. and i think complete there are less numbers of people or less people committed to having a real go at modeling it uh, these days than there were in those days for two reasons the first of all there were no kits available or no sorry no no uh, arfs available uh no families none of that sort of stuff uh, where now everything's available at the, at the drop of a few dollars. Yeah, look, I think it, I always say it was diff- very, very different era in that the internet changed the world. In in like oh, when I look at my childhood versus say my kids, it, they're very, very different. And you know, you were you were saying earlier that when you were on the farm, that you just had to you had to make do and and build it or repair it or whatever to get by. That whole well, you either did that or you didn't have it exactly, and that whole era has passed us now because we live in a country that's very prosperous. That you know, uh, people have got jobs, people are making money, and and we've got access to stuff now. And so that whole you know, my kids couldn't relate to that. They just it would be unheard of because life's just too good for them in a in a kind of way that it's not as hard as what it used to be. But then there's people like yourselves that you're the smart ones because you worked out how to do stuff, whereas now they <laughs> well, don't need smart. to work out. It was essential. You either well, had to work it out or you didn't do it. <laughs> well, I think actually that's a good point because it always fascinates me what I call the, the, the break-fix cycle, that we aero modelers, especially way back when pre-electric foam planes and all that kind of stuff, that you'd often build a new plane, take it out, crash it first, go, first, first flight, and then go home and fix it. Nowadays, it's That's like right. oh, I'll just get another one, um, and because you didn't have it, you didn't have another choice. It was not as if you could go and buy an ARF off the local hobby shop, and you know that kind of thing. You just went to fix it. 
My uh, excuse me, Andrew. My wife is nodding vigorously at you. <laughs> I like your about wife. all those all those all those models that we uh, crashed on Sunday and uh, fixed on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But you know what? It's it, it's testament to the character of of people that can have the crash and then come back and build it. I was talking to a friend of mine today about this that. If I look at my circle of friends, the, the the guys that I went to school with, not many of them would be willing to go through that break fix cycle. There, you know, one of my one of my good friends, he is the ultimate consumer. If if he if you can buy a model airplane today and fly it tomorrow, that'd be great. But if he crashes it, he's never going to touch it ever again in his life. So it's 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 one of those common things that we aero modelers have is we're we're tenacious. We stick in there. We're very very yeah. sticky. We we well, you know, you're not a modeler. Not a model until you've built two or three or four models, really. Or crashed two or three models, then rebuilt them. Well, that models. that too, that too. Yeah, I agree. It's, yeah. You know what's interesting? I think that it, like it was some of the younger guys that we see um, around the traps now. Um, I, I'm pretty. They've they've started with that ARF kind of scene in the foamy electrics and that kind of stuff, and they're not confident at building at the start. But the more that they hang around the hobby, they get sucked into knowing how to do stuff and building stuff and getting more involved. And I think that's what we'll see is that evolution with these guys that had it pretty easy to start off with. But when they progress in the hobby, they're going to want something more challenging to do. And I did it myself. I went, you know what? I want to go and scratch build something. Literally cut the ribs out myself. And I started building yep. a little – I got a stick, you know, like an ugly stick. Yep. but. I scaled it down to um, a plane that I had that a, a, a club member was building one meter wingspan. So I had to scale the plans and then hope that it all sort of kind of worked and um, started cutting stuff out. And it was really, really rewarding just to, when I put the wing together and glued all the wing together and I dummy fitted it onto the other the plane that I had, the built plane to see roughly if it worked. And when it fitted on on that fuselage perfectly, I was jumping for joy. I'm running around the house and I'm saying to my wife, "Look what I did! I built a wing, <laughs> and it actually fits on the fuselage." And of course, she'd say, "Great." Well, that, that doesn't it doesn't it uh, conjure up a, a feeling of absolute success and and, and and happiness that you're able to complete that and, and do it so that it works? I I used to do that. I had a lot of disappointments, but I had a lot of a lot of successes as well over the years. Let's talk about some of those successes. Tell us about some of the, the some of the best models that you've built. Oh, the, the the Lockheed Lightning I built early was a beautiful model. It flew very well, and I was probably reaching toward the peak of my uh, flight skills then too, which which helped a lot. Uh, it was a lovely model to fly, and. Uh, I spent a lot of years before I could uh, bring myself to build a second one. <clears throat> I lost it on a in, in Tiger Country on uh, as one engine failed on takeoff and the other one uh, died down to a, a low rev, so I couldn't keep it in the air, and uh, I lost it into into rough uh, ground and uh, it damaged it too much to rebuild. But uh, it, it was a it was a lovely model, and I enjoyed that immensely. With retractable undercarriage? Retractables, yeah. Uh, little old Rom Air retracts, which were hopeless. But, but still, they gave us the opportunity to have retractable undercarriage. 
nobody else, nobody else that I knew of had that uh, that uh, available to us at that, in those days. How big was the model? Uh, six foot, yeah, two, two, one foot eight meters, yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm. Quite a quite a small one by today's standards. Yeah, everything's got bigger, hasn't it? Yes, everything's got bigger. Yeah, and why well, shouldn't it? The uh, the radio equipment has become much more reliable and much more uh, much safer to use, and and uh, we have infinite variety of uh, 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 changes to the controls that we can make for our aircraft. So you know, why shouldn't we uh, have? bigger, more sophisticated models. I think it's wonderful. I became a bit too ambitious and uh, joined in with a group of four, uh, four five, five other guys and shared a Skycraft Scout. Have you ever heard of one of those? No, I'm about to Google it. Well, uh, <laughs> or Google. Google would See, there it is. Google would Google it's like an ultralight. It is. See, Google knows everything. Scout was the first legal ultralight in Australia. It was an Australian designed and built single seat tail dragger. Yes, made by a guy in Sydney called Ron Wheeler. That's it, Ronald Gilbert and... Wheeler. Oh, you've got him, have you? In July well, you 1972, go. a Sydney boat builder named Ronald Gilbert Wheeler made the first flight of a minimum aircraft, which he designed and built himself. Yes. Well, we we uh, we wandered up to Sydney and. And carried the fuselage and uh, and so on on the on the top of the car uh, uh, with the tail plane and the wings attached, of course, and uh, uh, travelled home to to Horsham where we assembled it and proceeded to learn how to fly the first eagle legal ultralight. Really, I'll tell you, it was pretty basic. I'm looking. I'm looking at it now, and I'm thinking that looks really scary. Yeah, the uh, the wings were. Uh, yacht sails, and the uh, the leading edge of the wing was a yacht boom. Yeah. The fuselage yeah. was a yacht mast, simple as ABC, really, and uh, very very uh, uh, low power. There, there was a little 125cc uh, Victor engine which had been potted up as much as possible and and a tuned pipe fitted to it. Uh, so we, we got about six or seven horsepower, which was enough through a top reducer to drive a, uh, 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 1200, uh, diameter propeller. Hmm. That is just crazy. Uh, I, I used to fly it around quite successfully, but I was a light person. A couple of our group were quite a bit heavier than me and they couldn't get it off the ground. It was That's... that marginal. So mm. did you have to have a license or do you have to get training? No. No license, no training, nothing was required. You could just buy it and fly it. You strapped yourself into this very primitive ultralight first flight and said, yep. okay, this should be fine. It should like flying a model airplane, and you did it. That's it. That's it. it was, it was, uh, there, was no, there were no uh, ailerons on the model. It was no wing warping or anything like that. It was just straight rudder and elevator. So all the takeoffs were into the wind, as were the landings. That is just crazy. I wouldn't even go near the plane. Oh, are you just crazy? <laughs> that, that well, is... I flew it quite successfully. My my father was most upset about me flying it, but I I flew it quite successfully and several times around the farm. <laughs> but anyway, that progressed, Andrew. Did it? Yes, to a to to a, a Fisher FP one hundred and one, which was a little 
geodetic, geodetic construction, all wood construction, geodetic uh, build, a bit like the old Wellington bomber uh, with fabric covering. And that was a lovely little aircraft. I loved that. What was it called? A, a Fisher FP one hundred and one. Quite quite a small, quite a small thing. I built it from scratch uh, off a off a plan. It's a high wing a kind of thing. Plan. Sorry, it's a high wing cub. Uh, it's a, plane. It's a, a bit a bit like a a bit like an Oster, you might say. Yeah. To look at, a little bit like an Oster to look at. Yeah. Did you need to get a license for that? No, not not initially. Oh, really? Nothing was required, and then the a few people who had no idea or skills, flying skills at all. Uh, I should say that uh, my first flying was uh, done in gliders in Horsham, back before radio control. Okay. Because uh, somebody asked me if uh, if I'd come out and help them launch some, you know, wing walk some of the gliders around the airfield and that sort of thing, and that progressed to having a fly once a day or something like that with the flying instructor because uh, I was a good little boy and helped him all day. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I learned to fly glider uh, fairly thoroughly, really. Uh, so I had those skills a little bit before all of this occurred. Oh, good. I was thinking, oh, no, you had no skill. You'd never done it before and just jumped in and flew it around. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Then I'd really think you're crazy. I also had in, in, in those days a very good friend who, and fishing mate who uh, was a local jeweller in Horsham, and he owned uh, a Cessna 175. Have you seen one of those? I may have. Let me have a look. A 175. Ah, uh, mate, you're not allowed to look on Dr. Oh, Google come on, too late. Now. Dr. Google just told me. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's in Cessna. Skylark. Cessna 175. It's a, it's a, a continental engine. A six-foot-six, I think, geared propeller. Mm. So it's similar to a 172, really. Yeah. But uh, because of the big geared propeller, it has a good uh, – uh, it'll hang on in a climb, whereas the others used to fall off in speed, you know, and drop away. So, yeah, a nice aircraft, but a quite an old one, and he taught me to fly the Cessna. So I learned it. He probably wasn't allowed to, but he did. And uh, I, I learned that there. Mm. Okay, good. So it's just not you know being a cowboy jumping into a tiny little ultralight and flying around and hoping oh, for the okay. best. Yeah, plenty of cowboy. <laughs> but anyway, later on the later on the uh, a few people uh, killed themselves in ultralights and hurt themselves badly and that sort of thing. And so the government decided to regulate it. Yeah. So they brought licenses in, and certain skills needed to be uh, demonstrated for a license to be handed on. And did you – so you went back to model plane building then? Uh, so, well, no, later on I, I built that uh, and flew that uh, light aircraft with and without licence for quite a few years. <coughs> and then I contracted a uh, – and I was building a uh, Jodel D-18, which was a two-seat side-by-side all-wood all wood aircraft, uh, when I contracted an inner ear disease, which uh, uh, put me on the ground, unfortunately. So I was never able to fly again. That's not good. Um, so uh, went back to models. The club was established uh, in in the Bensdale area, not far from where we are now, actually, uh, on a farmer's property. And uh, I flew the ultralight in there a couple of times and 
met up with a few of the members and then later on joined the club and when they when they moved up to another field and uh, and uh, it progressed from there. Mm. Okay. So okay, let's get back to some of the models. So the lightning was a good one. What else is a standout for you? Oh, the standouts are probably Saber. Yeah, I built a Saber. I built a Saber. The one eighty six D model, which was the one with the radar dome above the air intake. And the radar dome was a perfect round black dome, so a nice round black spinner fitted in it in in the place of the dome and uh, an engine behind it. So we we uh, uh, fitted an inverted uh, an inverted uh, uh, two stroke engine in there, and the and the air intake became the part of the cooling for the engine and the. The radar dome was the spinner for the propeller, and when the prop was spinning, you really couldn't tell the difference, except for the noise. <laughs> yeah, okay. But it, that was a lovely aeroplane to fly. I flew that at, uh, oh, gee, I flew it at a few places. I flew it at, uh, uh, oh, Wagga, Adelaide, uh, oh, various places. I don't know. I can't remember now. But quite a few places around away from Away from uh, uh, locally, yeah. yeah. In fact, in fact, the, the the Sabre first flew before I moved here from Horsham. Mm. Uh, so that was a that was a Horsham model, yeah. yeah. Then uh, I built various different sorts of um, uh, monoplanes. Uh, I built a I built a uh, Messerschmitt ME one hundred and nine, which I didn't like because it had too smaller vertical surfaces and was hard to keep it flying straight ahead. Mm. Didn't like that much. Maybe that was just me, I don't know. But anyway, I didn't like the aircraft, so I, I moved on from there. Built uh, uh, the six-foot Catalina, of course, I told you about. Uh, so that started me on Catalinas, and I I did build another one but never flew it. I sold the almost completed structure to a guy. Uh, and I don't think he ever built it either, ever finished it either. Uh, so that was a bit of an abortion of, of a bought uh, of of a of a, a model, and uh, uh, it, it was a lot later on that I built the, the big Catalina. I want you to tell us about this Catalina because I've talked to you about it before. I think I got it on a video we we're interviewed about. But tell us about this, the latest Catalina, the big big one. Well, the latest one is a is a a model. Designed and, and drawn by a guy in Iceland by the name of Sterla Snorrison. Now Sterla is is a is a uh, has built designed and built a few different sorts of aircraft, including I think an Aronka and others. And he was lucky enough to have a resident Catalina on the airfield right next to his home. Uh, so he was able to go over there and measure things and go for a flight, fly in the Catalina and so on. And he 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 was able to get detail, have detail, and and uh, and and the skills to put it in, into drawings that most people don't have. I think. Uh, so it became a very, uh, what I thought was a very well designed uh, plan and construction. Uh, uh, photos and so on uh, for the whole aircraft, including the retractable undercarriage and the whole bit. 
and it was uh, uh, 13 feet, which is about four metres in wingspan. And his original aeroplane weighed about uh, uh, 21 kilos, I think, which was about the same as mine finished up to be. And uh, it's been like uh, one of the uh, older guys I met in way back when I first came here uh, who had flown Catalinas in the islands during World War II uh, said it's, it's like a truck. It's different like an old truck without power steering. And that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly how the Catalina flies. You yank it and crank it. Yeah. Now, but you told me something um, after you built it. You had a plan of flying it off the salt water, didn't you? Or what was the story about with the, with the salt Ah, uh, no, I never did. I never did. I built it so it could be flying That's in the right. water. Yeah. But because of all the salt water in this area, I decided not to try that because uh, at one stage of the game, we had a few little models that we used to uh, take down to locally to where I live at Eagle Point and uh, put them on the lake and, and fly off the water. But the radio, even, even if you sealed it all up as best you could, the radio gear would only last six months and you'd have to go and rip it out and throw it away and put new stuff in because it had all corroded away. Oh, yeah. Now you couldn't couldn't keep couldn't keep electronics together in salt water. You haven't flown that plane off water though, have you? The, the latest Never thing. tried, no. No. The original designer Stur Surla did after a few aborted attempts. But um Catalinas are not easy to fly off water either, by the way. What's the problem uh, with them? The, the the extreme tips of the wings are the floats. Yeah. And uh being so far away from the side of the fuselage, if they dip in the water, uh, you can't call it a ground loop. I swear you call it a water loop. <laughs> water loop, yeah. yeah, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. I was going to say we could take it down to the new uh, Bourbon Club in um, Blue Rock Lake there and put it in there and see how it goes. Yeah, not me, not me. Not no. now anyway. Now, what's it, what motors you got running in that? Because there's twins in it. Well, I started plane. off with two little... Um, uh, DLE 35RA engine for remote exhaust engines, uh, sorry, rear exhaust engines. Uh, and I found that uh, uh, the best I could do for reliable idle was about uh, 1900, 2000 RPM. And the Catalina wants to fly uh, with two engines that, that, uh, of that size at uh, 2000 revs. It doesn't want to land. So you've got to uh, sort of uh, struggle in and keep pulling the nose up and increasing the drag to try and slow it down enough so it'll land. So later on, I decided that I uh, could fund a couple of uh, little Sato radios. Radials. I put two three-cylinder Sato radials in there in place. Uh, they'll idle at 15 or 1600 revs and with smaller props because they're a four-stroke. Uh, it made the aeroplane much better to handle. Uh, and the landings are all at about uh, 25 kilometres an hour, you know, or even less. Yeah, it's a nice – it's a big model. It's like, what's the weight? It is a big model. How much does it weigh? 21 kilos. Yeah, okay, so it's not lightweight either. Uh, uh, approximately, approximately that, Andrew. I can't remember exactly, but about that. You'd carry a fair bit of fuel for that, wouldn't you? Two engines? No, the two little four-strokes – don't use much. Uh, I think they're on about 10 ounce tank each. Okay. How was flight time on it? 
Oh, I, I wouldn't have any problem flying it for 12, 15 minutes. Oh, really? Now, that you've still got that model, haven't you? I mean, normally with that sort of an aircraft, you, what are you going to do? You fly it around in circles. Mm, you can't do any aerobatics no. because it wouldn't be in character. No, no, so, not at all. So, uh, you know, after five or six minutes, you've had enough anyway. You put it on the ground and then, and, uh, or do a touch and go or two and then land it, you know. Yeah, good That's point. That's all you can do, really. I suppose the string bag's a bit the same. That's why I liked it so much. Because <laughs> you're not flying that model anymore, are you? What? The Catalina, you're not flying that anymore. Well, I flew it. The last time it was flown, I flew it. That was at the, I think, at the March uh, action event this year. Oh, okay. Wasn't it? I yeah. think I flew it once there. Well, there's probably a queue of pilots that we're willing to fly it for you if you don't want to fly it. Oh, look, there will be others that can fly it. Uh, I've already done that with one other aircraft, as you well know. With the old Darcy Wilson having a crack at one of your planes? Uh, might have been, might have been Darcy Wilson. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he did a masterful job of it too. I might add. I tried for quite a few years to win the Barry Jones Memo- Barry James Memorial Trophy, and I couldn't win it. But Darcy won it on his first flight. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> That's it. Well, you know, I got to thank Darcy because I was at the Bensdale Club. Uh, Last weekend, as we record this, and um, I said, Darcy, come on, got to go for a fly. I need you, you're going to come and help me. And without fail, he goes, just pitched in, started my plane for me. It was great. I had like pit crew, I call him. He was excellent. He loves yeah. it. He loves it. And he, I think he enjoys flying other people's models as well. He gets a bit chuffed, you know, because he's mainly flying the aerobatic models. And now he, when he gets his hand on the scale model, he enjoys that as well. So, uh, and he's a competent yeah, pilot. He's, 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 a, he's a great young man, and and uh, I appreciate him so much because uh, uh, I, when I go out there, my health is a bit compromised now, and when I go out there, he's the first to be on scene to ask if he can do anything to help. You know, and I, I really appreciate that. That's that's mightn't mean much to other people, but it means a hell of a lot to me. Well, I think there's also been one slight improvement in his life. I heard today that he has had a haircut. So, <laughs> what the mullet's gone? The mullet's gone. Oh, <laughs> the mullet's gone, and it apparently was by accident by the hairdresser. But uh, I don't know. And I, you know, he keeps on picking on me for having no hair. But um, yeah, his was getting a bit out of hand. Okay, so that's yeah, poor, that, that pla- poor old Darcy. I know. Well, I, I've seen your um, fairy swordfish as well as a beautiful plane, and that's that's a big model as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, that's also four meters wingspan, but four meters with the Catalina is one thing. That's one eight scale at four meters. The swordfish is one to, uh, one to three point eight nine, I think, at uh, at four meters wingspan, which which is you know the the full size aircraft less than half the size, but uh, it's still a it, it's still a biplane, and the biplanes are big, you know, it is big. It's by far the biggest aeroplane I've ever built. So they did get bigger and bigger. When when did you build that? When did the fairy swordfish come around? About? That that was that was the biggest one. Well, I built three of them. So I suppose you know what the end of the podcast is now, don't you? No, we don't know that yet. Quiet, Brian. Save it for the we end. We haven't reached that point. No, okay, no. Okay, well, I won't talk about that. But the fairy swordfish, <laughs> like, so the latest one, this this one that you've got, is the biggest one that you built. Yes, it's the biggest, the biggest of the three fairy swordfish. I started with about eighty inch wingspan, I think. Uh, the second one was a hundred and two inch wingspan, which I flew and flew and flew, 
until one day I became blasé and pulled it off the ground too soon. I stalled and dropped a wing oh, and, and damaged one, damaged the bottom of one wing. And are these? Uh, are you building these from plans? Uh, I found a, a magazine plan and and used that as a basis to look at uh, how they went about various things. Uh, then changed most of it because I knew as I increased the size that that wouldn't work uh, and uh, eventually sort of partially drew a plan, partially used an existing plan to to uh, build the two bigger ones. The small one I built basically off the plan, but it was a, a plan of about a, I think, about a, a, a 1,200-millimetre wingspan, I think, the original one. And I built the the uh, eight inch, whatever size, whatever that is in metrics. Uh, I'm too old for metrics. You've got to forgive me no, for that. See, do you know what? <laughs> when it comes to model planes, I'm an inches man. Are you? Well, there you go. So eight inch wingspan was the middle one. Mm. Uh, the smallest one, sorry. The middle one was 102 inch wingspan, and the and the uh, uh, biggest one, that's four meters, which is too too many inches for me to remember. Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> that's a big big one. What motors in the big one? Oh, it has a uh, UMS uh, oh, 210 cc five cylinder radial. How yeah. does that go? The UMS radial. My first big radial engine, and I love it. Yeah, that that plane deserves a radial. So I'm glad you did that. But oh, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be fair to build that model without the radial engine. That's not true. that size. And how does it go, the UMS? Oh, it runs beautifully, yeah. Do you have to do any special maintenance or anything? Or No. Yeah. Oh, yes, there is one thing. Uh, I never did try to fly the radial without a pump. Yeah. I put a fuel pump in there to pump fuel to the carby. Radial engines don't build a pressure pulse. The crankcase remains the same volume all the time. So you can't build a decent pressure pulse to drive a, a pulse-driven pump in a carby, yeah. like all the like all the little wild bros and so on have. So to, to overcome that problem, uh, DA, I think, uh, provided a little pump, which uh, 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 pumps a very low pressure but puts the fuel right at the diaphragm in the carby. Okay. So it doesn't need much of a pressure pulse to continue to complete the pumping process and uh, give you a good supply of fuel. So the radial runs beautifully with the pump. Now, I saw one on the weekend and I, I took a photo of it and actually just put it on the Instagram page uh, recently and, and I went, gee, that's a nice – I've heard of them, of course, but I've never really seen a lot running. But um, but now it's good to know that they're a good piece of kit. They're, actually, I'll tell you what, last year at the Shepherd and Mammoth Scale Flying, they actually – that was a prize, a UMS radial was a, a pilot's prize or – a raffle prize, something like that, and I'll tell you what, what a what a what a motor. Oh, well, they're, they are wonderful now. I think, I think they've they've uh, really developed into something that's well worthwhile uh, owning. Originally, I think one of our members has a a, a seven cylinder radial, an older version, the original manufacturer version, and he had lots of trouble with that engine to get it going and and, and flying right. He has it. He has it working really well now, but only because he puts in heaps of work. And uh, I believe the company that are building them now has uh, 
has really developed them very well. Yeah, okay. And what's currently uh, sitting in your hangar? How many models? Too many to mention or...? Well, I've, I've sort of passed a few on because of uh, people who, uh, in under various circumstances, probably needed them or I thought they might have needed them. I don't know. I first of all passed on one. Uh, one of our young members uh, became very ill and uh, I th- thought I needed to cheer him up. So uh, I passed on a, uh, a Faisal Storch to him. Oh, yeah, which yeah. was about an 80-inch uh, span uh, fossil storch. And his, uh, his father is a European, so he enjoys that sort of aircraft more than I did probably, although I liked the storch. It was a lovely aeroplane to fly. Yeah, good plane to fly. Uh, great, great to learn the, the techniques you need with a wing that essentially doesn't stall. Mm. But anyway, uh, so I moved that one on to him and... Uh, uh, Oh, I suppose over the years, various other ones, I don't know. Uh, I've, I've, I have a quite a large uh, chippy, which is, a, I don't know what that is, about, about 103 or 4 inch wingspan, I suppose. Not a super chipmunk, just a normal chipmunk. No, not a super chipmunk. There's no such thing as a super chipmunk. That's a oh. uh, Charles rubbish. Oh, come on. <laughs> that's that's one of my dream planes. <laughs> no, it's not iconic. The, the real chipmunk was built in Canada. Nice aeroplane. Yeah, they're all right. <laughs> Super chipmunks are pretty good, though. <laughs> I, only, I only like the real one because uh, one of the gliding club members uh, had one in Horsham and, and, and he used to tow gliders occasionally and was able to give me a, a second seat in the thing a few times. And uh, the poor guy, um, he loved that aeroplane and did some awful things in it. Uh, but he killed himself on a railway level crossing, for God's sake. Oh, gee. <laughs> mm. Anyway, that's that's a side. Uh, so the chipmunk, the Catalina, the, uh, the string bag, very swordfish. Yep. Uh, the other one that uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time developing and building, uh, and it's a terrible thing to fly, is a Seagull 5. What's that about? I'm googling. What do you it. mean? What? What's that? What's that about? What do you mean? What's that about? Well, you just... should know. That's an iconic Australian aeroplane. Yeah. Okay, but I don't know anything. Wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> I know all about it. It was. A, a, yeah. It's. It's otherwise known as the walrus. No. Oh come on. What? It's a seagull five. Australia. Australia uh, military contracted. Uh, um, R.J. Mitchell, to design uh, a seaplane that would be able to handle up to uh, two-metre chop. Yeah, okay. Because the Seagull 3, which they had, would only handle about um, half a metre chop, and they couldn't uh, fly it into into rescues where the sea was uh, a bit rough. So they needed something that would handle rougher seas for the rescues, apart from other things. So they contracted R.J. Mitchell to build this aeroplane and he he built a prototype or had a prototype built and and the, the, the Australian uh, military asked for that aeroplane to be um, tested in Britain and they liked it so much that they decided they'd build some as well. So we got 25, the original 25, 
Seagull Fives, as we named them, and Britain decided to build them with a couple of minor alterations, not not a great deal of difference, but a couple of minor alterations. Uh, the Australian one had uh, uh, leading edge slats on the top wings like the Tiger Moth does. Uh, the English one didn't have that uh, and a couple of other minor alterations, and they called theirs a walrus. Okay, yeah. yeah. And somehow or other, the walrus became extremely popular and Seagull 5 uh, went into oblivion. Well, the, the, uh, really? they were made, the, the, the walrus was made to be catapulted off a ship. Yes, yeah, so I was the Seagull 5. Really? That's just crazy. Imagine that. And, and they're biplanes yeah. for, for those playing stick, at home. Stick it, stick it on a rail. Yeah. Stick it on a rail across the side of a, a military ship. And launched the damn thing. Hyperflawless. That's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder how much how much speed they had when they uh, let go. I don't know. I don't know. I suppose they would have the benefit of the, uh, the 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 fifteen knots or whatever the ship could be doing into the wing. Oh, that's true. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I've, I'm looking at a photo of one being catapulted off the uh, off the side of a ship. And so obviously, it did did actually kind of work. Okay, so yeah. and that, that's that's an intriguing plane. It's a biplane, and it's a it's a you know seaplane. A terrible thing to fly in a model. Really? Why? Uh, what did it I do? Lots of trouble uh, getting somewhere into the balance area for it to oh, be yeah. safe to reasonably safe to fly. But I did fly it uh, at the scale and scratch built at Pee and Darks in, in, there in Pakenham. And uh, uh, I was privileged enough to be offered the uh, model of the meat for it. Oh, I don't know why, because I crashed, well, didn't crash land, or I heavy landed it and, and, and broke a few landing wires on the on one wing and the wing sort of flopped down. <laughs> Minor <laughs> Made a bit of a mess. Minor Bent people. one undercarriage leg. People obviously but, yeah, enjoyed but, seeing uh, it. They still offered me the uh, model of the mate there, yeah. As did the Catalina at the couple of previous years previous to that, yeah. See? I flew the Catalina and the Hawker um, uh, Sea Fury at Clean Darks. Nobody liked the Sea Fury much, but they all loved the Catalina. Have you still got the Sea Fury? Yeah, I have, but I took the wheels out of it on the fence. Before they extended the uh, fence line, yeah, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I, I'm a big one for hitting fences. Um, the the aircraft the aircraft itself is all right. The fuselage is undamaged, and uh, the wing has the undercarriage pulled out and the flaps damaged. On it. That's all. The rest of the wing structure is fine. Oh. Just needs just needs some repairs. There's, and a, there's a project. I was too disheartened to repair it. <laughs> How much building are you doing nowadays? Very little. Very little. Yes, yeah, I've got a, a, bit. a couple of little things on the go, but I only, uh, I can only put in about an hour of time, and then I have to go and rest. Uh, we, we we don't want to talk about that sort of it. That's uh, that's after the end of the podcast. Yeah, that bit. Well, the your home club is the Bansdale Club, and we were down there recently. Um, and it is a really really good club, and I always enjoy getting down there because it's. It, there's a good culture around the club. Uh, people put in the facilities; just keep on getting better and better. Um, you know, and whenever I see you down there, you've always got a smile on your face. So you must enjoy getting down there. Well, we all try our best to uh, be encouraging to everybody to fly 
it's a state field for goodness sake. So everybody should have the, uh, who has the necessary license should be able to come there and fly. You know, if uh, they come there and fly 10 times a year, then they should take some contribution towards our, towards our running expenses and so on. Uh, but, uh, uh, even, you know, even people who've never been there before, we'd love to see them. We, we, we enjoy their company. If they're talking models and, and, and interesting things, that's good. See, one of the interesting things that I find is, again, I'll talk about the culture of the club, that I've been to other clubs where they don't want to see other people come to their club. But the Bensdale Club Why? out of I don't well because they're grumpy old men or something. But the the, the <laughs> We're band, all grumpy old men. <laughs> oh, well, you'll turn into grumpy old men. That's all our future. But you're not there yet. I'm getting there. I'm probably ahead of you at this rate. But I, I, that's the thing that surprised me about this Bensdale Club is, and 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 Tony Wilson, Sergeant Tony Wilson, who we've had on the podcast before, a good friend of mine. He's a key driver and, and has a has a philosophy of just running events and getting people there. So last weekend, as we record this, because it's you know we record before uh, it goes live. But that last weekend I was at Bansdale. They had their mid May muster event. Um, this weekend coming is the IMAC event at Bansdale, and it just you know seems like the club members don't mind that and that they're happy to see other faces come to the come to the field, which. Now, there probably are one or two members who become a bit disgruntled about a lot of outside events, but don't let it be too much of an issue, Andrew, because our, our club only exists because uh, there were people with foresight who said we need a decent country club in Victoria uh, who can where we can support all sorts of model flying. And our piece of land is is 118 acres, I think, or the piece of land owned by the MAAA is 118 acres, and we use about uh, 12 acres of it, I suppose, as a a, a flying field for radio controlled models of the of the power or glider or aerobatics or whatever you want uh, formats, and we could use the rest of the property quite easily. For free flight, if people wanted to do that, and we'd be happy to see them there. Uh, the the guy who leases the rest of the property for uh, running cattle doesn't even mind. In fact, he loves coming down to uh, join us and have a, a, a bit of lunch with us when we're having an event and uh, meeting up with some of the people that come in to visit. So you know, it's a pretty good country club from that point of view. And the run and the runway's good. Well, it's marvellous, isn't it? And why is it marvellous, Andrew? Why is it marvellous? Because it's long, wide, green, smooth. <laughs> why? What else? Yes, is all it? of those things. But there's one more. There's one more reason why it's marvellous, and that is we have three or four or five guys who are just dedicated to keeping it marvellous. They're there all the time, watering or in the summertime at least, watering or or cutting or. Or, or trimming or doing whatever it's needed to keep that thing, that airship looking good and feeling good to the models, you know. You don't see any deep holes in it. You don't see any sprinkler boxes or anything stuck in the middle of the airfield. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's easy for everybody with uh, anything up over a 40-size model to take off from the grass uh, or even a smaller one than that, really, a 20-size model. Uh, you know, uh, and the jets uh, with their small wheels don't have any problem with it, do they? 
No, not at all. No, I enjoyed flying there. I, I, it was the first time I had a, a decent fly with a big model there, my 100cc or aerobatic plane. And uh, just want to reiterate, Brian, there's a lot of people think that I actually just talk and I don't fly, but I actually do fly. And I flew my 100cc aerobatic plane and Darcy Wilson started it for me. And I said to him, Darcy, I'm just going to fly some circus just to get my eye in of the orientation of the field and you know where the circuit is sort of place. And uh it was one of those fields where you felt like you had plenty of space. There was just no limitations. And I can see why people like flying jets there because, you know, it, it wide open spaces, good approach to come into land, uh, long runway, wide runway. If you, if you miss that runway, then you shouldn't be flying a model plane. You know, it's, it's that that wide. But th- but again, as, as I said, it, it seems like there's this good culture there where there's everybody's willing to pitch in and, and make it a great place to go flying. And then that gets like so many of my friends – have actually become members because they love going there. And they're like, one of them says, I'm going to become a member. This place is unreal. And then the next one goes, well, I'm going to join you as well. So three, four of them go and sign up to become members of the club uh, quite willingly in there. You know, it's a three-hour drive plus for a lot of them to get there, but they they enjoy coming to the I know. And and, and, and I I, I marvel at those guys with their dedicated, uh, you know, dedication to come down to us when they're three three or four hours away. And uh, you know, have a look at the guys coming down from Canberra as well. That's even worse. Oh, yeah, well, the, yes, the, you get a lot of people from the Marimbula sort of way coming down, you know, yes, six, five yes. or six-hour drive as well, that they make a beeline. Yep. So it's a great sight to see, like when you've got a club. So like you that. enjoyed your flight the other day? Yeah, loved it. Did a couple of flights. We had you know, The weather so, wasn't so great. That, that, but, that, so that really means that we have another convert, does it? Oh, look, <laughs> oh, you know what? I, <laughs> I stayed with one of your members, John Lord. And he is a great guy, and I had I had a good time with him. And he and he invited me back. He said, "Whenever you want to come." So I've got a, a, a got a place to stay with John. Club's just down the road. You know, got friends there now. It, it's you know, definitely I'm coming back. He's not a bad sort of lad, that one, is he? No, John Lord's a great guy. We had we had a ball. Right. It's, it's just you know what the only problem is. You know, I call it the flat out RC peanut gallery. All those friends of mine in the peanut gallery, you know, Dominic and Mario and Con, all these guys at Ringins from Melbourne, they're all there. And so they're not Ringins. Well, they're not Ringins. They're, they're part of the Bensale contingent. They are, yeah. but that's yeah, recent, recent converts. But uh, they like it when I turn up because I can become the butt of all their jokes. <laughs> you know, there's a couple of. There's a couple of things that I need to talk to you about during this podcast. Oh no! And and one of them is Tony Wilson, Sergeant Tony now, Wilson. Now, when I when I uh, uh, wanted to give up the job of secretary, which I'd held for nine years or something like that, uh, I looked around for somebody. Well, eight years at that time, I suppose. I looked around for somebody, and I said to Tony, "What about taking on the club secretary's job?" No, I'm too busy. Can't do it. I'm working all the time, you know. And I said, that doesn't matter. Uh, we know, I need a mover and a shaker. I need somebody who can get it by the throat and, and take it on and be enthusiastic about it. And I know you can if you want to. But no, I don't want to do it. But after a little while, he came around and that was really the masterstroke of my uh, time with this club. You know, uh, we we had a few strong members who worked hard to get uh, get to the point where the MAAA would buy some land for us and we would go through all the throes of having to council approve a planning permit and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and there are 
fantastic members who put in a lot of time towards that, like Ian Waters and Ron Bartlett and Graham Martin and and uh, various others uh, whose I I don't uh, misname because there are too many of them, uh, and and uh, developing that that uh, uh, piece of land as a state field was really a masterstroke for our club because it'll mean for the future of modelling that it'll just go on from strength to strength while we have enthusiastic members. That's and it's true. fantastic. Tony is a, is a very good um, secretary in that he's very, very proactive in, in encouraging people to come to the field. And, and, and that drags, I think, a lot of other people into that whole culture and of, you know, pitching in and, you know, Tony's, you know, Tory's Achilles tendon and he's at the event still in his mobility oh, scooter was, scooting around and uh you know he, he likes being that was a terrible thing wasn't it and i had to three events this year he's had to be wandering around or two events he's had to be wandering around on a mobility scooter but do you know what i think going. i think he's still having fun it, it, like he, he he loves the club and he loves being there i talk to tony a lot we, we often have chats and uh Darcy, his son, always says that I'm the president of the uh, Tony Wilson fan club. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but no, yeah. it, it's it just shows you how good you can have it when you've got a good bunch of people uh, that are really proactive. You know, I've I've been to a lot of different clubs, and and you know, I've always said that there's something in the, in the water out in Gippsland Way where there's some really nice clubs out there. You know, I've had some good times at the Sale Club, the Bensdale Club. The new Bragg Club that got a really enthusiastic uh, new bunch of people yes, trying to get that good, off the ground. Good bunch down there, I believe as well. I'd, I'd love to get down there sometime and and you know, have, not perhaps not have a fly with them, but at least be down there and be part of the uh, part of the yeah. furniture. Yeah, I had a good good trip to visit them, um, and that was a lot of fun. So, you know, we now put Bansdale on the map as a place to go to when they have their events that. My friends are already planning. Every time there's a, a, a good fun fly event happening, one of the bigger fun flies at Bensdale, they're, they're planning months out. Like it starts to annoy me, Brian, how they hound me. Are you going to come to Bensdale? <laughs> I don't know. It might be raining. <laughs> also, why aren't you there this weekend? Because I was there last the weekend. IMAX the oh, IMAX on. The IMAX on They're weird. Oh, half of them are friends there. <laughs> and I keep on saying... Well, don't say that. Darcy's one of the fans of the IMAX. Yeah, I know. I'm, 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 my circle of friends are all from the IMAX scene, and and I, I said to them, I'm saving myself, Brian. Don't tell them that. You know, I want to turn up to the national championships this year and compete yeah. in the basic category, and as I say, dominate basic and then retire at the top as the <laughs> national champion. Good on you. And I always say the basic category is the only one that counts. I don't care about these people that are in the unlimited categories and the sportsmen, the intermediates and the advanced and all that. I don't care about that. As far as I'm concerned, basic is where it's at. That's where all the champions are. We've got Tony Wilson in basic. We've got big Gavin Sexton in basic. It, it, I, that's, that, that's my group there. So I'm happy to have a crack. So, but they were telling me, Oh, why don't you come? And I'm like, well, I just was there. I, I came for you and I can't keep on going. I've got to do other things, Brian. There are some there are some really wonderful people around the, the modelling scene, and uh, you, you know wherever you go, you look for that. You look for those people. I always look for those people. I don't worry about the ones who don't want to be part of it. You know that's their problem, not mine. Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, you know the guys, the guys like uh, those people who 
help when we were trying to set up the site field. Uh, not only help, but were instrumental in getting it developed. You know, like uh, Carl Beeson. Uh, Carl uh, did all of the work from uh, VMWA president to make it possible for us to have a safe field here. I mean, we were we were quite uh, we were quite uh, of the belief that we wouldn't be able to because someone closer to the the population centres would probably uh, raise their hand and want to. Uh, take on the work and get it done too, but nobody did. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, they, they said, well, if nobody else wants to take it on, go for it. I think, I, I, actually, I just want to, I want to explain the situation because we get a lot of people from overseas that listen to this podcast and I'll just tell them what, when we talk about state fields is what happened down here where we live in uh, Victoria in Australia is the local association, uh, the, the, the flying association, went down a path of, of investing in land for model flying to happen and there's now four of them and they're sort of north south east and west of the city of melbourne and i think it's just one of the best things that they could have done because as melbourne expands a lot of flying venues are going to struggle to survive due to just lack of space noise all that kind of stuff but Worst case, some of them certainly will. Oh, mm. there's there's a number that are sort of coming under fire, under fire as far you know because of the land development and all that kind of stuff. And so, as aero modelers, it might not be as convenient, but we've still got places to go north, south, east, and west of uh, of, of Victoria. So, you know, my closest state field is probably an hour and fifteen minutes away drive. Uh, then mm. everything else is either two and a half or oh, there's probably one that's about an hour and a quarter, another one's probably about an hour and a half. To, and then I've got Bensdale three hours, Chuka two and a half hours. So we've got options it, it's, there. It's only an hour if you fly your Cessna. I, well, actually, speaking of that, I just want to tell you now, <laughs> Brian, I've bought a raffle ticket to win a full-size Cirrus. And, oh, okay. and, and it also oh. includes sixty thousand dollars worth of flight training. And Ooh, I said to goodness. my family, if we win this, it's a brand new Cirrus, the ones with the parachutes on them and everything. I said, if we win this, who's coming with me? And they all said, no one is going to come with me. <laughs> my my brother's a pilot, so he'd probably have a crack at flying the Cirrus. He'd be okay. He flies seven three seven, so he should be okay. So I reckon because the family don't want to come, I could potentially fly to Benzo with a model airplane in the back or keep one at your house and you can just drive it to the field for me because you're a good bloke. Or, or, or Johnny. Or, or John Lord can. Amongst the 47 other models that he's got. Yeah, I'll <laughs> land at the Bensdale Airport, which is just up the road. You'll then take me to the Bensdale field for to fly and then I'll just fly home when, I, when you know. That's a, that's a good plan, that's isn't that, it? Sounds pretty good to me. I think I, I think. Should knock off that raffle, okay? Well, it's it's going to be drawn shortly in June, so um, it's a, it's for a good cause. It's to raise funds for Angel, <laughs> Angel Flight, so I've contributed. And um, oh, okay. Imagine, and it's my colours too. It's like a blue and silver, beautiful interior. It's like a car inside. Um, I just, you know. Got to get over the Those motion. angel flight guys do a good job too, don't they? Yeah. Oh, well, speaking of uh, flying, we were down at the field at um, Bensdale and some guy's come out with his um, his extra aerobatic plane, I think, full size, and he's doing like an aerobatic demonstration for us. He was showing off. He knew we were there watching. 
and he was out past yeah. the uh, past the strip there, putting on a bit of a demonstration for us. So that was uh, that was pretty good. Yeah, well, we've had a few of those over the time. A couple of aerobatic guys live in this area, and uh, one used to fly here quite a lot. Yeah, there you go. We had a we had a uh, yak. He used to fly that around here quite a lot. But we encourage him not to fly over our airfield. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You got a pretty good uh, height ceiling there, but um. Yes, we do. We have fifteen hundred feet, but we'll only keep it if there are no altercations. So we've got to be really careful. That's true. Okay, Brian, we've covered a lot of ground, uh, and we've got to that final question because um, my battery's going flat, my recording device. Uh, the final question—it's <laughs> that question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer to. And you know, it's a varied—we get varied responses. Um, most people give me one plane, and that's what I'm looking for. But some people like to give me the one, two, and threes. Uh, but no, we're going for that plane that has been your all-time favourite model. What is it, Brian Hutchinson? Uh, I think it probably needs to be the Catalina. The Catalina? The Catalina yes, the Catalina is an iconic aeroplane. It's yeah. one that, that that everybody knows what it is. You know, even a non-aeroplane buff would know what a Catalina was because there's so many of them in in. in um, museums and so on, and in pictures, and and, and certainly during the uh, wartime movies, they were everywhere. Uh, whereas the fairy swordfish, uh, the other aeroplane that I like a lot, was only around the British Isles and, and Europe, and we didn't really see it here. So, so it's it's not something that I can personally take uh, an interest in because I've seen it. I've only seen pictures of them in England. So the so the Catalina's mine, and the old uh, uh, Seagull Five takes second place, and the Swordfish third. Oh, so you gave me the one, two, and three. You did a Norm Morris and gave me the one, two, and three. You know, I gave you the three. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. And I got to say, I got to say that the, if anyone wants to build an old old time uh, warbird, they could go and do a lot worse than build a Swordfish. It's one of the easiest things to fly. Uh, that I've ever had. Yeah, it's a good platform. You can just, you know, there's certain planes you look at and you go, gee, that's going to fly well. They have a shallow angle of sack on the ground, a long fuselage, and therefore you can just stick the throttle to the wall and let it take off by itself. Yeah, true. And the same applies to the landing. Keep a bit of power on and it'll land beautifully every time. Yeah, it is, it's a good-looking plane, that, and it's a big one too. But the Catalina's like that too now that I've got the right engines in it. It was a bit difficult initially, but it's right now. It's just a yank and crank aeroplane. <laughs> yeah, well, four-metre wingspans really help. Well, it does. It does, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Well, Brian, I'll tell you what, you're a legend and I'm glad I finally got got you on and I'm glad you answered the phone because you were threatening, you kept on saying, no, no, I won't be able to remember anything. <laughs> And then I worked out you're only joking, and I did ring you the other day to remind you because I said that I'm going to ring you, and I'm glad you answered the call. So, Brian Hutchinson, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate you you, uh, you taking the time with me. I enjoy it too. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted and what an episode it has been. A big thank you to Brian Hutchinson for joining me. Always love talking to the elder statesmen of our hobby because they've they've done it all and they've got great stories to tell. 
So a big thank you to Brian once again. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, if you did, don't forget to subscribe. Leave a nice review about this podcast. If you listen to Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or wherever platform you are, leave a nice review so we can tell other people how great this podcast is, if you think so. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC YouTube channel, the Facebook and the Instagram pages as well. You'll see content on all of them coming up. So motivation, I talked about it earlier. I'm motivated to keep on pumping out these podcasts. I do really, really enjoy them, and I hope you are as well. Get out there, get into the shed, finish those models that you've been planning on uh, building. Get out there and have a fly. Keep on improving. Keep on enjoying yourself. Be nice to each other, and I'll probably be back a couple of weeks with another episode. Talk to you then. Now looking back, eyes on the freeway, Bonnie and Clyde. A classic cliche, we're on the run, this is what we waited for.